And so we're going to look at uh, the account of Pentecost in uh, Acts chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 21. I'll read, uh, it's kind of a little bit of a longer narrative, so I'll read that. That's going to be the backdrop uh, for the sermon this morning. And then we'll try to understand the significance of that event. Uh, so I will uh, read verses 1 through 21, pray, and then we'll dive in. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues, as of fire, appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all those who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others... Mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days... It shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your word this morning uh, that tells us what took place uh, almost 2,000 years ago. Uh, this amazing moment in the history of the world, Lord, when uh, your spirit uh, came to indwell your people. So God, I pray this morning that as we hear these words uh, from the Bible, God, I pray that your spirit um, would take these words and bring them to life within our hearts. Uh, help, uh, help us to recognize this as more than a historical event, Lord, but also as a present reality that you are with us by your Holy Spirit. And God, I pray that you would teach us this morning. Would you be our guide and our teacher and help us to live out these implications, Lord, that we can now live connected to you and empowered by you because your spirit has been sent to us. So, Lord, please uh, guide us and teach us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, uh, this past uh, January, or I guess February, uh, when uh, the Super Bowl was being played, and there was multiple new commercials that came out like every year during the Super Bowl, and uh, probably, I think, my favorite commercial from the Super Bowl this year was a, a, a commercial for crypto, uh, Bitcoin, uh, with comedian Larry David. Now, some of you might remember this commercial. Uh, it pictured the comedian Larry David uh, at multiple different uh, turning points in the history of the world. Uh, at the invention of the wheel, uh, the invention of the fork, um, you know, then uh, indoor plumbing and electricity. And at each of these major turning points, uh, Larry David's character says, eh, you know, not such a big idea. You know, it's not, it's not going to make it. And every point, at all these big turning points, he scoffs. He doesn't realize the significance of what was taking place. And then the commercial ends by encouraging those watching, don't be like Larry. You know, and they want you to uh, invest in Bitcoin, which they think is the next big thing, the turning point in the history of the world. Uh, that remains to be seen. Uh, but what we read in the Acts 2 narrative is one of the biggest turning points in the history of the world. Um, this is a major milestone in redemptive history. The coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost to indwell followers of Jesus, it changes what is possible for humanity. And as a consequence, it changes the trajectory of history. History changed that day almost 2,000 years ago. On that day, thousands of people were gathered in Jerusalem. Uh, Pentecost was a, a holiday that already existed uh, as a Jewish holiday, and it takes place 50 days after the celebration of Passover. Uh, Pentecost comes from the word 50, penta, 50 days after Passover, and it was also called the Feast of Weeks. And at this feast, the Israelites recognized that God is their provider, and the harvest that they are beginning to look forward to is brought to them by God. So that's what they're celebrating, that God is the provider, and the harvest that will come is from him. So think about it this way. Uh, the initial feast given to the Israelites by God, Passover celebrated that God brought them out of their slavery and oppression in Egypt. And then the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, celebrated that God was placing them in the land and blessing them there with abundant provision. So God delivers, and God blesses and provides. And so thousands of Jewish people had gathered in Jerusalem from all kinds of nations around the world, and they were there this day. And many of them heard this sound, uh, the sound of a mighty rushing wind, and then the sound of over 100 people beginning to speak exuberantly in many different languages. Uh, and many people began flocking to this sound, a great crowd gathered around the followers of Jesus. And they're wondering, what's going on? Is there an uprising in Jerusalem? Is there a party breaking out? You know, we hear the sound of a great crowd in many different languages. What is happening? And the thousands of people who gathered there, this is what they heard. They heard followers of Jesus speaking about the mighty works of God that had taken place in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And what was astounding is that all these people from all the different nations represented were hearing this message in their own language. So everyone recognized that something amazing and unusual was taking place. Uh, they could hear this message, this mighty, wonderful message, 
in their own tongue. So some in the crowd were amazed and astonished and then asked this question, what does this mean? And it's a great question. What does this mean? But others in the crowd um, also recognized something unusual was taking place, but instead of recognizing the significance and seeking to understand its meaning, uh, they instead just mocked. And they said, eh, they've all had too much to drink. And they're just mocking them. So this morning, what I want to encourage us all to do is to be like the first group, not the second group. Uh, the first group who says, what does this mean? And they came to recognize the significance of what took place and it changed their lives. The second group saw the same event, but didn't lean into the question, what does it mean? So that's what we're going to consider this morning. What happened on Pentecost that was such a big deal that it was a turning point in history? That's going to be our question for the morning. What happened on Pentecost that was such a big deal that it became a turning point in history? And I'm going to consider uh, four things that we see that caused Pentecost to be a turning point in history. First, Pentecost was a turning point because a new era began that day. A new era began. That's what Peter was saying. When people were mocking the followers of Jesus, saying, eh, you've had too much to drink, he engages the question. He does so first humorously. His first response, really, he doesn't get all defensive. He kind of responds humorously. He goes, eh, it's only nine in the morning. You know, they haven't been drinking. And so he kind of just laughs it off, so to speak, and then leans into the truth. He goes, let me explain to you what this actually is. Acts chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, he says, But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men dream dreams. And then if you kept reading where his quotation from Joel, in verse 20, he references uh, the day of the Lord, the great magnificent day. So these phrases are pretty significant when he says uh, the last days and the day of the Lord. Those are Old Testament phrases, phrases the prophets used to talk about a future age, uh, a future day of blessing. And Peter is saying, what you are hearing today is evidence that that day has begun. So he's saying this is not just a, an event, just a significant meeting. He's saying this is the beginning of a new era. That's what Peter's claiming from the prophet Joel. Uh, the future has essentially invaded the present. Now, to understand this, you have to understand how Scripture talks about time. When you read through the Old Testament, uh, you hear all the prophets talking about the future age. Then often in the New Testament, you hear the authors referring back to the, pro the former age. And so there are two ages when you read through the scriptures in the history of the world. And actually, I think we have a graphic here kind of showing these, these ages. We talk about the first age being the old covenant. Uh, God gave the law to his people. There are rules in the old covenant. And Often that, uh, that, that day is referred to as the present age, or former days, or former things, or the domain of darkness. Now, there's a second age. We call it the new covenant, the new agreement between God and people that was sealed with Christ's blood. 
We also refer to it as the age to come, or the latter days, when all things are made new, or the kingdom of God. Now, to the old covenant people, they expected a new, they expected a, a, a future age. They didn't expect it to overlap. They expected a Messiah to come. And when the Messiah would come, God would bring his blessings to his people, and God would punish the wicked. So in, in one day, there would be the removal of evil, the removal of suffering, and then the establishment of blessing the whole world over. And so a good chunk of Jesus' teaching is explaining the overlap. Most of Jesus' parables are saying, how can the kingdom be here, but our world still be broken? And Jesus is saying, well, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's something small, easily overlooked, but it will become something great that blesses the whole world. So he's always explaining how the kingdom can be here in seemingly an insignificant way. We're in the overlap, and we still are living in the overlap. And so Peter is explaining to his hearers that day that though we're right now not seeing all evil being removed, the future kingdom has invaded our present world. And what you're hearing is evidence of that. There's a great quote from um, author Trevin Wax, who wrote a book called Eschatological Discipleship, which is a mouthful, all right? But uh, listen to how he describes this overlap. He says, The resurrection of Jesus and the gift of the Spirit mean that God's new world has begun. The future has partially invaded the present. The seeds of the new creation have already begun budding in the old garden. And God's victory on the cross is now beginning to claim back territory in a world enslaved by sin. That's what's happening right now. And the fact that the Spirit has been poured out on God's people is evidence of this new world beginning right in the midst of our broken world. Pentecost was a turning point because, first, a new era has begun. Secondly, Pentecost was a turning point because a new power for ministry became available to everyone who was a follower of Christ that day. A new power for ministry became available. See, God has always intended for humanity to join him in his work. That in the first pages of Scripture, when God creates Adam and Eve, he blesses them and says, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and have dominion. That have dominion part is about joining God in his work, about rulership, about governance, that we as human beings are meant to care for, to bring order and blessing uh, and fill with life that which God has made. So every time you are bringing order to something, you're fulfilling your designed purpose. You know, when you clean your messy basement, you're bringing order to something. Uh, when you are parenting children and wrangling them together and bring order to the household, you're fulfilling your design purpose. When you're organizing a messed up financial uh, statement, you're fulfilling a creation mandate and bringing order to something. That humanity is made to participate in God's work of bringing order and blessing to this world. The problem is, things have gone very wrong. And we don't only bring order and blessing and life to the world, we bring an awful lot of disorder and destruction and violence and death. And so God has come for us to rescue us from our own sinful decisions. And God still wants us to be part of this mandate 
for blessing and bringing order and him working through us. Now, in the Old Testament, we would see that occasionally God would pour out his spirit on select people to accomplish his work. Uh, God would occasionally pour out his spirit on craftsmen. When the, when the tabernacle was built, it said that God gave his spirit so that the tabernacle was built well and beautifully. God gave an ability to the craftsmen to build the tabernacle by his spirit. Or then on prophets who would speak the words of God to his people. God poured out his spirit. So the prophets were speaking God's words through them to his people. Or then on kings, God would pour, send his spirit so that kings could rule and govern justly and righteously. So in the old covenant, in the former age, we see that God's spirit was given occasionally to select people to accomplish his work. But what happens at, at Pentecost is the floodgates are opened wide. Acts, uh, I'm sorry, um, Acts 2.17. Um, uh, Peter, again, it's quoted from Joel, where God said, uh, or, uh, the prophet said, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men dream dreams. Hear the promise there? That it's not just select, elite people that God is pouring a spirit on. It's all flesh. All flesh. And that is the case today. Any person who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, God has sent his spirit to. All Christians. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 11, gives further explanation about this. It says, a spiritual gift is given to each of us so we can help each other. To one person, the spirit gives the ability to give wise advice. To another, the same spirit gives a message of special knowledge. The same spirit gives great faith to another. And to someone else, the one spirit gives the gift of healing. He gives one person the power to perform miracles and another the ability to prophesy. He gives someone else the ability to discern whether a message is from the spirit of God or from another spirit. Still another person is given the ability to speak in unknown languages, while another is given the ability to interpret what is being said. It is the one and only spirit who distributes all these gifts. He alone decides which gift each person should have. I mean, it's an amazing promise that to put your faith in Jesus Christ is not just to make a decision about a certain set of facts, though it involves that. It is to be filled with the Spirit of God, that God is putting his Spirit within any person who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. And, and then God is looking to work through his followers in unique ways. I mean, God's made us all very differently. And his spirit is now working out his purposes through his people. I see a lot of evidence of that in this church here. And there's a lot of ministry currently going on through a diversity of giftings. It's awesome to see. I mean, the church can't work if everyone had, like, the same gift. You've got to have different giftings so the church can accomplish God's holistic purposes. And God's working through his people because it's his spirit in us that is doing the work. So... When uh, God uh, gives a new power for ministry to people, what he's doing is he's giving us power in terms of an ability to minister. But secondly, it's not just an ability to minister, it's also a boldness to minister. In Acts 1.8, uh, before Jesus ascended 
he said to his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, and in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's amazing when you read through the Gospels, and you see uh, the characteristics of the disciples, and then you start reading through the book of Acts, and there is a massive change in the disciples' character from the Gospels to the book of Acts. I mean, the disciples were all the time fighting with one another, um, always uh, trying to see who's going to be first in the Gospels. And then, in Jesus' great hour of need, um, they deny him and run away. They're afraid of the consequences. And yet, after the Spirit comes, we see these same men behaving very differently. Uh, They become very bold in how they're talking about Christ. Matter of fact, just a few chapters later, the disciples are arrested for boldly preaching about Jesus. And when they're, when they're confronted by the religious leaders, they say, we can't help but talk about Jesus. And the change is the Spirit. The Spirit has given boldness to these people for the work of ministry, which is a wonderful encouragement to us because we need boldness too. To be able to do the things that God has called us to do and speak to others about Christ, that's not easy. And so the scriptures aren't telling us, you know, man, just, just suck it up and try hard. The solution is the Spirit, that we need the Spirit to give us the desire and the power to do the things that God is calling us to do. And because Pentecost happened, that that power, that new power, is available by the Holy Spirit. Third, Pentecost was a turning point because a new unity is now possible. A new unity is possible. Acts chapter 2, verse 18 Here's the promise. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. It is significant that the first sermon after the spirit came focuses on the fact that the Holy Spirit will be poured out on men and women alike, and that they would both prophesy. Uh, Elise Fitzpatrick, uh, author of a book called Worthy, writes this. Don't miss the importance of Peter's use by the unction of the Spirit of the prophet Joel's words. In employing this passage, the Spirit was declaring that the New Testament church would be filled with Spirit-empowered women and men, that together, as brothers and sisters of the Christ, no longer waiting for his birth, but rather as his siblings, they would proclaim the good news that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved." See, in this new era, there is a restoration taking place of what went wrong in the old era. I mean, the very first sin, when we see uh, Adam and Eve sin and they eat of the fruit, immediately the consequence is not only separation from God, but there immediately becomes division between man and woman, husband and wife. I mean, Adam's first response is he blames his wife. You know, I did it because of her. And immediately after that, there is a curse brought upon Adam and Eve. And part of the curse was this, that to Eve it was said, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. That's not God saying how it should be. That's God saying how it would be because of sin. And in this new era of restoration, we see God beginning to bring healing, a recapitulation to what has gone wrong, that there can be a new unity between man and woman, 
husband and wife because the Holy Spirit has been poured out. Now, I think we all recognize the brokenness that exists in our world between the genders, between men and women. And I think all of us, I think all of us, long for that not to be the, the, way, the way it is. We want healing and wholeness. But I see so often that we seek a solution not in the ways that God prescribes. You see, we usually seek unity through uniformity. That is, it's really easy to have unity with people that are just like us. Guys with guys, women with women, or take that out in other ways, people with different cultures, different ethnicities. It's easy to have unity when we're with people like us. So we can have uniformity when we're all the same. But God provides this wonderful new way that we can have unity even when there is distinction and diversity. That God doesn't create unity by eliminating the distinction. He pours into men and into women the same spirit. And our unity is based on the spirit that God has given to us. And that has massive implications, not just for men and women to have unity in marriage, but also for the church to have unity among different ethnicities, different cultures. It is the spirit of God that produces unity in his church. And this is a turning point in history. I mean, prior to this day, um, every major religion is ethnocentric. That we gather with people like us. And on this day, the Church of Jesus Christ launches this massively diverse movement where people from every nation, tribe, and tongue are bound together by the Holy Spirit in a new community. Uh, listen to what uh, Rebecca McLaughlin, author of Confronting Christianity, says about this. And I'm really actually pretty uh, excited about her. Um, she's going to be speaking at our uh, district conference for the New England District of Evangelical Free Churches uh, in October. So I may be a little bit biased towards her at this moment. But she has a great quote. Uh, she says, The last book of the Bible paints a picture of the end of time when a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages will worship Jesus. This was the multicultural vision of Christianity from the beginning. For all the wrong turns made by Western Christians in the last 2,000 years, when we look at church growth globally today, it's not crazy to think that this vision could ultimately be realized. So if you care about diversity, don't dismiss Christianity. It is the most diverse, multi-ethnic, and multicultural movement in all history. And that is undeniably the case. When you look around the world today, by far the most diverse multicultural religion is Christianity. And you look at the history of Christianity, how it began centered in Jerusalem and then moves to Rome. At one point, actually very significantly, in India, eventually towards Western Europe. Eventually the center is more in the U.S. and not so today. It's Africa and Asia. No other religion has moved its center like that because it's not culturally or uh, ethnically bound. It is the Holy Spirit that is animating the people of God in every nation, every tribe, every tongue. So because of Pentecost, a new unity is possible by the Holy Spirit. Fourth, Pentecost was a turning point because a new closeness with God has come. A new closeness with God has come. Acts chapter 2, verse 21, uh, Peter finishes off the Joel quotation by, with this phrase, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
Now, that's a direct quotation from the prophet Joel. And when Joel said that, that phrase, it was very different than how Peter said the phrase. Um, if any of you know Hebrew culture, you know that um, there's such reverence for God, for the Lord, for Yahweh, that his name is not even spoken, um, that the, they don't fully write out that word, that name. So all who call upon the name of Yahweh shall be saved. But as you read through what Peter says, he goes on, he goes on in this, ver, in this uh, sermon to directly say who Yahweh is, that it's Jesus. And so in this Old Covenant era, you have a great hope that salvation is going to come from Yahweh, this one powerful, good God, but who is so powerful and holy that we don't even utter his name. There's a distance there, a separation. And Peter says, let me tell you what, who Yahweh is. It's Jesus who is drawn close. And more than just say his name, his spirit has come to indwell us. And so the God who has created everything, the God to whom we will all give account one day, has died for us, has risen for us, has ascended on high, and now sent his spirit to us. Talk about closeness. The God of the universe dwelling with us and within us. A new closeness is possible because of Pentecost. I love what Paul articulates in Romans chapter 8, verse 14 to 16. He says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So God's not just calling us his employees. He's brought us into his family as his kids. You have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you have received God's Spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. For his Spirit joins with our spirit, to affirm we are God's children. God wants you to know how much he loves you. He wants you to know that you are his child when you're behaving well, when you're behaving poorly. You as parents know this. You may get angry with your kids, but they're still your kids. And God has given us his spirit so that we can know we are his kids. We are his children. There's a closeness with God that Pentecost is confirming that his spirit has been given to us. Pentecost is a turning point in history. And many people that day, when Peter first gave this sermon, realized it. It says 3,000 people became followers of Christ that day and joined the church. I mean, what a momentous day. The question for us is, well, if it's that significant of an event, how can we experience the benefits? How do we experience the benefits in our lives of what happened uh, at Pentecost? And I just want to focus on two things. In order for us to experience the benefits of Pentecost, first, we must receive the Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we must receive the Spirit of God through faith in Jesus Christ. When Peter comes to the end of his sermon, people realize the significance of, of, what, of what's happened, and they call out to Peter saying, well, what do we do? Uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 38, says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Doesn't get much clearer than that. He says, You want to experience what's happening here. It comes through faith in Jesus Christ. You need to recognize that all of us have lived uh, apart from God against 
his intentions for life. To varying degrees, all of us have gone our own way, not God's way. And Peter says you need to repent, to turn from running your own life, to recognizing the wrongness of running your own life, and turn to Jesus Christ. Whatever you say is best. I may not understand, but I trust you. I trust that you died to forgive my sin. I trust that you rose to give me new life. And I'm handing over the keys to you. We turn from our own way. We turn to Jesus, trusting in what he has done for us in his death, in his resurrection. And it says, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Now, for some of you to hear today, you probably remember when you came to faith in Christ. And, you, and some of you may remember a significant change. You sensed the Spirit's presence within you. Others of you might not have. I didn't. I came to Christ when I was six years old. Uh, it was a pretty young, uh, I guess six is pretty young. And I was not aware of this major change of the Spirit being in me. But I see great evidence of the Spirit through my life today. So in the same way that I can't remember uh, when I was physically born, uh, but I know I'm alive, so I'm, uh, I'm, I was obviously born physically. In a very similar, similar way, spiritually, I was not aware at the time of this major change taking place where I was reborn spiritually. Oh, but I'm alive spiritually. I see the evidence in my life today. So whatever your initial experience was in coming to faith in Jesus Christ, if you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the Spirit has taken up residence within your life. We cannot experience the benefits of Pentecost apart from faith in Jesus Christ. That's first. But second, and there is a second, if we're going to experience the benefits, more than initial faith in Christ is needed. More than initial faith in Christ is needed. Again and again throughout the New Testament writings, we're told to be filled with the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit, to live by the Spirit. There is this ongoing awareness of how the Spirit is to be in charge of our lives. And so we call this, be filled with the Spirit. Now, don't hear that phrase as if you get more of the Spirit as you become a better person. Uh, if you're a follower of Christ, you've got all the Spirit you're ever going to need. What it is, is that the Spirit gets more of us. Every area of our life is intended to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And most of us only gradually realize the areas that aren't. Now, God, I, I was giving you my financial area of life, but hadn't really opened up much of my sexuality to you. I'm giving that to you as well. Or, or my parenting. Or my hobbies. We, we all have areas of life. And God's Spirit is meant to be fill, filling all of those areas. To be filled with the Spirit is to let the Spirit have control in all areas of our lives. So how do we do that? How do we be filled with the Spirit? First, we need to remove the things that get in the way of the Spirit filling those areas of our lives. Ephesians 5.18 counsels us, don't be drunk with wine, because that'll ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. So there's a clear, get rid of this in order to experience that. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, the issue here um, isn't alcohol in and of itself. Uh, the issue is a level of control and influence. I mean, there are a lot of things that we allow to fill our lives in the place of the Holy Spirit. There are a lot of things we give uh, a controlling stake to in our lives. For some people, it is alcohol. There is a dependence upon alcohol to be able to cope with life and to be able to, you know, feel good about what's happening. But for others, it's money. 
That's got the controlling stake in life. Or maybe it's the, the approval of others. We all have things in life that we put at the center and give a controlling stake to. And the counsel of scripture is you've got to remove those things from the center. You've got to remove those things. See, the Holy Spirit's work is a work of displacement. It pushes out the things that we have put at the center so that God can be at the center of life. So first, and we all have to ask this question and ask it regularly, what in my life right now is getting in the way of the Spirit being in control? And if you can't identify something, you probably haven't thought hard enough. Because as sinful humanity, we are so prone to look to anything and, uh, anything and everything other than God to lead our life. So what right now needs to be removed from the controlling center of life? Secondly, you open yourself up to God's spirit being in the center. And it sounds so simple, <laughs> uh, but I know it's not. But Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, he goes on, he begins by saying, don't be drunk with wine, uh, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Then listen, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs among yourselves, and making music to the Lord in your hearts, and give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. It's not just about saying no to things that fill our lives other than the Spirit. It's about saying yes to Christ through these mechanisms of worship. Uh, he says, sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Make music in your hearts. Now, some of you probably think that the music portion of the service is kind of like the window dressing, maybe the warm-up for the sermon. And Paul says it's not. He doesn't say, you know, if you are musical, sing. Uh, he says, if you're a Christian, sing. This is a mechanism by which the Holy Spirit is filling our lives, that we, we worship God, we, we, we recognize his worth, give him the praise that he deserves, and decenter ourselves and ask God to be the center. And so we're not going to be filled with the Spirit apart from engaging in these kind of spiritual disciplines, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, and giving thanks to God. We're grateful for all that he has given to us. Those two simple things, I dare you to try them out. Make a practice this week of singing. Uh, maybe it's some of the songs from this morning. that You put them on repeat. Uh, focus on, on worshiping God through those songs. Practice gratitude. Um, you might not think that is that significant. I think it is. Singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, and giving thanks is opening ourselves up to the Holy Spirit, filling every area of our lives. Uh, lastly, in closing here, Christ has come in his spirit uh, to fill us. We need to remove the things that get in the way. We need to open ourselves up to worship, but it's for this purpose. He gave us his spirit so that he could send us. So he doesn't fill us up and we remain stagnant. He fills us up so that we can be poured out. And so as we are serving others, we are being poured out. It gets tiring to continue to minister, to serve. But that's the way we were made to live, being poured out. And there is always more for God to fill us. God promises, I will continue to give you what you need. So if we're going to be filled with the Spirit, we actually have to pour ourselves out, trusting that God will continue to fill up our lives with himself. So Pentecost has happened. The Spirit has come. 
And we have the privilege now of knowing Jesus closely by his spirit living within us, of being changed by him, empowered by him, to do the work that he has called us to do. What a privilege. Let's pray.